This podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts. And in this episode, we are going to be looking at two films that were aimed at children but triggered childhood traumas. Yeah, it should be an interesting one. This. Uh, later on in the podcast, we're going to be looking at Michael Ray's Laser Blast. But first, we're going to kick off with Howard Zeef's My Girl. The first film of this week's Double Bill is the 1991 movie My Girl, directed by Howard Zeef, starring Dan Aykroyd, Gemma Lee Curtis, Anna Klumsky, and the one and only Macaulay Culkin. So a little bit of personal background on My Girl to start with, as this was my childhood trauma. I was a huge fan of Home Alone. I'm sure I've spoken about that on the podcast before. Obviously, like most children in the 90s, huge fan of Macaulay Culkin. So, of course, when we see that there's this movie that he's in, which is a coming-of-age summary flick that comes out that's like got a feel-good vibe to it, you think, yeah, this will be a, a really good uh, kids' movie to watch. So I'm about eight years old, and ITV are showing My Girl, so my mum records it for me. She doesn't know anything about it. She's not seen it before. So that evening, we, we you know recorded it, sit down to watch it, and, well... Talk about getting your heart broken. <laughs> it is one of the probably quintessential tear jerkers of the 90s. Um, so it's a film that, even though it really did resonate with me at the time, I've revisited it many times over the years and most recently, obviously, watched it again now for the podcast. And uh, it still gets me every time. So we're going to get into talking a bit more about My Girl and its marketing, which is so fascinating, and um, just what we generally think of it and whether it still holds up, you know, 30 years later. So the movie is directed by Howard Zeef and was produced by Imagine Entertainment. Uh, just for context, they also produced movies like Parenthood, The Problem Child Films, The Nutty Professor, Liar Liar, The Grinch, and Eight Mile, to name a few. The movie was distributed by Columbia Pictures, in the US, it was released around Thanksgiving on the 27th of November 1991. And um, in the UK, it wasn't released until the February of 1992. So what is My Girl about? Well, who's going to tell us, Darren? It couldn't be Nick Reganis, could it? Oh, it is. He is back on the podcast and I am overjoyed with this. So let's see what Nick has to say about My Girl. Having lost her mother in birth and with her whole life encircled by death, Veda Saltonfuss, a gloomy 11-year-old daughter of Harry Saltonfuss, the town's funeral parlour manager, it is no wonder that death became almost an obsession to her. In addition, Veda has no friends in school, she's a hypochondriac tomboy, 
her grandmother has Alzheimer's, and worst of all, her best friend is Thomas J. Sennett, another unpopular kid who is allergic to just about everything. During the summer break in 1972, Vader will have her first crush. She will join a poetry writing class, but most of all, when the cheerful and quirky Shelley DeVoto takes up the position of makeup artist at Harry's Mortuary, she will gradually find the maternal figure she always needed. Far too much for a girl to handle. Pretty good synopsis without kind of giving away anything pretty much about the movie. It does hold up pretty well, my girl. I think as a kid's movie, it's touching on some subjects that you might think are not immediately suitable for a kid's movie. There's an awful lot of talk about death and dealing with death because it's set in a funeral parlour and it's all presented in a very matter-of-fact way. So it's quite a responsible treatment of dealing with death when it's around you every day. It isn't just 90 minutes of doom and gloom about people dying. You have these various subplots. Of course, you get Jamie Lee Curtis coming in to be the makeup artist. Jamie Lee Curtis is brilliant in this movie. I love Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie. I mean, she's pretty good, good in pretty much everything, but she actually does bring a little bit of sunshine into this movie. When it's going to get a little bit too gloomy and depressing, there's always Jamie Lee's character. And there is some fairly heavy doom and gloom in the final act. I think if you've been under a rock, you probably don't know what happens at the very end of My Girl. For one of the characters, it's not good. <laughs> yeah, so we will get into that. But I think there's too much emphasis on this movie being about Macaulay Culkin dying because I guess at the time he was hugely popular and it was, you know, a major shock and especially to have this in movie aimed at children. But looking back at it, I think you don't have to be a kid to get something out of this movie. I think it's a movie that's kind of universally resonated with everybody I think watching it as an adult now, I find myself like more um, getting the jokes, obviously, that I would, that would have gone over my head and kind of maybe becoming more invested in the adult characters as well. I think th- there's that to it. Yeah, so this this movie came out and um, if you watch the original trailer, it is incredibly misleading. So you've got Macaulay Culkin doing the voiceover, talking about his friend and what she's going through. So you think it's going to be you know, a story through his eyes. And it really isn't. At best, he is a side character. He's he's a supporting role, a very important supporting role. But he, he's not the sole focus of this film. It's Anna Klumsky that holds this movie. She is incredible. And she's 11 years old playing this part. And it's, it's her story. She's doing the voiceover in the actual film itself. So I think it was a bit cheap with the marketing because it just wanted to get bums on seats rather than actually consider what the material was and what impact it was going to have on young audiences. Interestingly, it was actually viewed by child psychologists prior to being released into the public domain, just to say, like, see whether kids could cope with it. It was passed, obviously. The MPAA originally rated it PG-13, but then the producers then appealed for it to be reduced to a PG which I think is fine. It doesn't, you know, it, it's got a bit of language in it and that sort of thing, but it, it's, not, it's not heavy in terms of sex and violence or anything like that. So I think PG is a pretty fair rating to, for it. I think it's just because it forces you to confront uncomfortable truths. And I think that is the, the like, hard, it's a very hard film to swallow, especially if you're young. Yeah. So 
That's the thing. So I actually found an article from 1991 from the Daily Kent State uh, Digital Archive. And it, it's really interesting because it, it kind of really does capture the um, original reaction to the film. And a parent at the time was actually quoted saying, we had no idea that the little boy would die and that the family lived in a mortuary. That was all a surprise. So uh, I don't know how that... I, I'm assuming the trailer with Macaulay Culkin doing the voiceover is the original trailer. So how the mum didn't realise it was set in a mortuary is a bit confusing because the, the opening bit of the trailer shows Vader singing in the mortuary and you've got Dan Aykroyd with his dry humour saying, um, stop singing, I'm embalming my high school teacher. Yeah. So how she missed that, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I do like the humour. That's kind of It's very much kind of gallows humour about when they're embalming people and, and getting the bodies ready for the uh, funerals. What I was going to say, probably quite unkindly, you're right about it being Anna Klumpsky's story. I was going to say Macaulay Culkin's story is the B story, and it's, but that's that's an unfortunate choice of words. I think most people know how he meets his demise, the fact that he's allergic to absolutely everything, bee stings in particular. But I think it's quite a brave movie in that it actually forces you to confront the death of a kid, which pretty much no other family movie would have touched at the time. And it does it in a fairly sensitive way. It doesn't wallow in it either it's just a fact of life and it presents it as such and yes it's upsetting but what else would you think it was going to be the death of a child is upsetting they weren't going to portray it in any other way and for them to give it such a responsible treatment there's a lot of credit for that i mean it's it's far more adult than i think it's given credit for but at the same time it presents everything in a way that kids can understand as well so Considering people might think, oh, it's a Macaulay Culkin movie, and it'll be a bit of fluff. It's got a bit more depth than that. So I'm, I'm, I've got quite a lot of affection for my girl. Bizarrely, did you cry? I didn't cry because I mean, I think it's one of those weird things where I think a lot of people did, and the bit where Vader is standing over the coffin. Normally, anything like that would just set me off. For some reason, I think probably because. I saw it at a certain time when I was probably a bit more cynical and even now it kind of it's upsetting but it doesn't it doesn't have me blubbing like say the end of a ghost ways. There's just a trigger point in a ghost ways. There's a particular piece of music and that only has to start and that's it. I spend the last ten minutes of the movie sobbing. This I've seen it a few times, you know what's coming. It doesn't make it any less powerful. And I think Anna Klumsky really, really sells it as well. I mean You'd have to be made of concrete not to feel anything for her at that point. But it's one of those movies where, considering the amount of films I cry in, it's a bit weird that I don't cry at my girl. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting because it takes a lot for me to cry in a movie. It's got to be something that hits me hard. Now, I'm probably bouncing on the nostalgia of it, but also it is Anna Klumsky's performance. And it's that line, he can't see without his glasses. And I can't even really get through talking about it without trying like, not to well up. But it, it's it's that moment where she walks towards the coffin in the middle of the packed funeral. And then she runs out and then she um, sees her teacher. So there's a teacher in an English teacher played by Griffin Dunn from American Werewolf in London. Vader has a crush on him and she breaks down at his house like after running out of the funeral and it's just all like yeah it's it's very sad it's very raw emotion 
I think as well for a kids movie having an open casket with a child in it I mean that was just yeah in incredible why they did that they, they really just wanted to pack a punch there with, with that with that scene something that I think doesn't hold up is this movie's tagline and I remember when I used to see the video cover in the shop and that it um, had this tagline on it and I just don't think it holds up and it's a bit insensitive it goes when your dad's an undertaker your mum's in heaven and your grandma's got a screw loose it's good to have a friend who understands you even if he is a boy so obviously they deal with the topic of alzheimer's in this as well which is yes. very heavy mm. so it's like if you're you know a young child and you're very close to your grandparents like you know i can imagine it would probably be quite tough watching scenes where vader's caring for her grandma and in some aspects, they play the Alzheimer's um, like subplot for laughs as well. It's it's not handled the best, I don't think, in this film. Mm, yeah, it's. I think it depends. I mean, having personal experience of a parent with dementia, I think you can see the funny side of it, but at the same time, I know that it, it really depends on the situation. I mean, I, I could sort of see the humour in it. I don't think everybody else possibly could. It's really difficult to watch, even so. But again, it's not shying away from anything. It's dealing with things like dementia and the fact that one day we're all going to die. Some of us a lot sooner than others, in the case of poor old Macaulay. I mean, the weird thing about the trailer, going back to that, is that if he's narrating it, if he, is he narrating it from the afterlife? It's like, oh, hello, it's Macaulay, like from the other side. I'm going to tell you about this movie I'm in. About 70 minutes in, I cark it. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> so, yeah, um, the producers were reluctant to cast him initially because, again, he was super, super popular at the time and um, because of the outcome of his character. They knew it was going to upset many of his younger fans, so they considered casting Elijah Wood instead. But, of course, Mr Culkin Sr., who we've discussed about before, oh, no, he wasn't having any of that. He was like, my son is playing this part. He's going to be in this movie. So, yeah, he got his way, and obviously Macaulay Culkin starred in it. I think Elijah Wood would have done a really good job. I think he'd have been very sweet in it, and I, th I think it would have still had quite an impact. But I just think with this film, would people be talking about it to this day if it was anyone else other than Macaulay Culkin in that part? Probably not. Regardless of the fact that he is a supporting character, his name was above the marquee in all the marketing. It was basically, he was above Dan Aykroyd and Jamie Lee Curtis when they were trying to sell it to people. Now, both Dan Aykroyd and Jamie Lee Curtis have got very marketable names. If you're going to stick somebody above them, then you know that that person is having the movie targeted towards what they're doing in the film. And you're right, it's kind of disingenuous the way that they marketed it because it's very much sold as a Macaulay Culkin flick when, I mean, he's in it for a reasonable amount of time, but he is no, by no means the main character in this. But that's the way things are marketed. Coming off the back of a big success, it's like, well, you know, he's in this movie well, for what, maybe 20, 25 minutes. It's like, yeah, but he's just made this massive hit. So let's just let's just stick him above the title because everybody will go to see it. And fair enough. You know, that's how they get people to see movies. And to be perfectly honest, selling it on the back of Macaulay Culkin's name probably meant that people saw a movie that if they hadn't had him in it, they wouldn't have gone to see it. And they wouldn't have been 
subjected to the kind of experience that is my girl. It's not a nicey nicey kids movie. I mean, there's there's things about grief and loss and the problems of adult relationships and there's talk of divorce. So there's plenty of adult topics which get dealt with in this movie. Now, they're not dealt with in this kind of gritty sort of particularly adult way. There's no kind of effing and blinding and the violence is very mild and, and it's dealt with in a way that isn't going to upset a lot of people. But it's still actually dealing with this stuff. A lot of kids' movies would completely shy away from that. So My Girl's got a bit more depth than a lot of... I mean, it isn't even really a kids' movie. I know it's marketed as such, but I guess it's something that's more targeted at families, really, because it's got something in it that everybody can identify with. But, of course, we're going back to Macaulay Culkin. It's like, yeah, Macaulay, it's a kids' movie. I can imagine some people went in there and got the shock of their lives that, like, the opening bit, there's somebody on the slab in the in the undertaker's office. They're, they're talking about funerals. Jamie Lee's character turns up in a camper van. She's... I mean, she isn't dressed suggestively, but they're playing on Jamie Lee Curtis's image of... I mean, she was kind of coming off the 80s. She was doing things like Perfect and stuff, and she was a bit of a sex symbol at the time. So they were playing on that as well. So I imagine Middle America took one look at this and was quite horrified. <laughs> Definitely. And, you know, even for myself, when I went into this movie, I did not know what was going to happen the first time because it was like... Mid, mid to late 90s when I would have watched it and you know all I went off was the trailer we didn't have the internet like it is now to find out all this information whereas I think anybody new coming into it now I think they'll already be aware of what happens so yeah I think for me it was like the shock of it but it's a film I'm glad that I saw so young it's been a very like formative film because it obviously it just makes you think and makes you confront these un uncomfortable realities that, yeah, as you say, we're all going to die. But, yeah, it's um, really bold killing off a child character. And I'm just thinking, going back to the poster, it just features Anna Klumsky and Macaulay Culkin. If the poster had been different and, and also showcased Dan Acker and Jamie Curtis on it as well, it might have like had a different vibe to it because it wouldn't have been just like, this is a kid's movie. It wouldn't have had that misleading image of it. Yeah, definitely. The adult plots are dealt with. I mean, again, it's not anything that you're going to be upset by. And and the, the burgeoning relationship between Dan Aykroyd's character and Jamie Lee's Curtis's character is quite sweet. But again, you wouldn't normally see this in kids' movies because there's a certain idea of what a kids' movie was like in the kind of 80s and 90s. And it was like lots of colour, lots of action. You know, we don't want to we don't want to talk about things like if somebody's going to die we're just going to brush that under the carpet. They're going to disappear, but we're not going to delve into like what happens. So we're certainly not going to show them in an open casket afterwards. Yeah, it's um, like going back as well. If you really look for it, the film does subtly foreshadow what's going to happen as well. So if you're seeing it for the first time, obviously you just you can't take everything all in at once. But... The foreshadowing is there's a scene, um, it's not long after Jamie Lee makes her, her first appearance in the film and they bring in a child-sized coffin and Vader's asking her dad about who's that for, is it for a child? And he just um, tries to kind of sugarcoat, so, oh no, it's for really short people. So we have that that moment in it. Then obviously once we find out that Thomas J has these allergies, as well he's allergic to everything, even chocolate. And then this is one that, 
came to my mind, and I don't know if this was actually intentional, but on the poster, Macaulay Culkin does not look like the character he plays in the movie. He's like just in a, a plain black top and has no glasses on. And I was thinking, was that kind of an ode to when she is saying he can't see without his glasses? Possibly. Yeah, it's, it's weird when they do that on posters where they take an image which either is from an outtake or clearly isn't from the film at all. I guess it was just kind of, it's Macaulay, let's get him looking sort of cute and very Macaulay-like. Because you're right, I mean, he's kind of, he's not the sort of brash presence he is in Home Alone. He's kind of a shy guy with, with specs and, and he doesn't want to take too many risks. And So, yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, the marketing's got a lot to answer for on this movie. But, hey, I've seen countless movies where the marketing is completely misleading and you get sold something that doesn't happen at all. I mean, horror movies have been doing it for years where you see something on the front cover, never never appears in the movie, just doesn't appear. And you just think, right, so what was the image on the front cover doing there when I've not been given this? They were doing this on VHS at the time. They were promising you things that would they'd never deliver. So I can't really have a go at the marketing of my goal because they're just sticking to the tried and tested format that they've used for decades. Yeah, and that's how they lure us in, especially in horror. The amount of disappointing films we have sat through because of a good-looking video cover, but there we are. <laughs> the film's title, My Girl, doesn't really have a lot to do with it. It was just kind of to get the song in by The Temptations. And a lot of movies had that trend back in the day because you had, like, Stand By Me. I think there's another film called There Goes My Baby, just, like, all based on these, like, popular 50s, 60s songs. But it wasn't originally supposed to be the title. My Girl had several titles that, if these were the titles, I just don't think it would have been able to market itself well at all. So we have Born Jaundiced, <laughs> more... <laughs> Morning Glory. Oh, for um, goodness oh, sake. You are, I, yeah. In lieu of flowers, Dini Departed, Vader with an exclamation mark, and I Am Woman. So most of those sound really morbid and do not suit the family-friendly tone that it is going for at all. But, yeah. Morning, <laughs> that morning Glory. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's, like, can you imagine Born Jaundice starring Macaulay Culkin? I mean, Born, Born <laughs> Jaundice is kind of... I mean, I know that it's kind of... It's a play on the sort of condition, but it's like also Vader's worldview is very jaundiced. But that's a terrible title for a movie. Would anybody want to... It's like, oh, what, what's on the cinema this week? It's like, oh, Born Jaundice. It's like, oh, I'm rushing to see that. That sounds a right barrel of laughs. <laughs> So I think there was like um, some sort of wager going on with the producers and whoever picked like a decent title for it got a cash prize. And obviously that's why My Girl stuck. And I guess it, it was the fact that, you know, they could use the, the popular song and that's another way to lure people in to watch the movie because of the soundtrack as yeah. well. So, and especially if you're feeling nostalgic. So like in the 90s, obviously people were nostalgic for the 70s and that's when the movie's mm. obviously set as well. So... <laughs> yeah, I mean, my girl, you're right. It's not a great title, but it's a hell of a lot better than the other ones. I think <laughs> they would have settled on that one if they did presented this list of titles to me, and it, my girl would have been at the bottom. I'd have been like, "Yeah, that one," because the others. And I hate anything with an exclamation mark at the end. Like, 
Vader Sultanfuss, one of the greatest character names in cinematic history. But to have the sort of Vader exclamation mark, it's kind of like a musical. That's what you think of. It's it's just that I'd, I've got a thing about movies with exclamation marks in the title. It's it's just it's just enforced jollity. Or, or for instance, it is like you'd think it was a musical. So that doesn't work either. But who knows? Did Bon John this ever get? any traction i mean it would be interesting to know that were they shooting it under that title i mean at some point somebody if they were shooting it under that title somebody must have gone you know what this title there's, there's a real problem with this title we need to change this <laughs> yeah definitely and i mean it is the first line that vader utters in the movie she says i was born john yes yeah. but 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 still it's 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 to convey um the hypochondria that's what the purpose of that line is. It shouldn't be the movie's title. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, I guess it is a very difficult movie to come up with a title for because it's got so many threads to it. It's, it's this coming of age story about this young girl. It's got this romance subplot with the adults. It's about a girl coming to terms with her dad moving on, accepting um, the loss of her mother, then subsequently her best friend. It's, yeah, it's got all these different threads to it. And, yeah, I can understand why they, they might have struggled, but some of the titles, like, yeah. I mean, they, they, they all sound like really morbid, and there's no way you would have got parents taking their kids to the movie with any of those titles. I think Macaulay True. Culkin or not I mean, <laughs> it would have been questionable. I mean, in lieu of flowers, sounds like some sort of outhouse movie. I would be expecting some kind of like Swedish drama if I'd have seen something called in lieu of flowers. I mean, I know it's, again, it's to do with the with the undertaking and, and that sort of thing and the funerals, yeah. But again, that's not a particularly enticing title. If you're looking for kind of a, a holiday movie opening and you put In Lieu of Flowers as the title, is anybody going to be queuing around the block for that? <laughs> I don't think they are. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> so talking about our friends over the, the BBFC now. <laughs> so this is an interesting one. There's a scene in the movie where Vader encourages Thomas J to mix their blood because they're going to be blood brothers for life. Um, she gets a cut and then she encourages him to pick a scab. That's how they do it. But the BBFC over in the UK were very concerned about this scene causing imitable behaviour. So on the original VHS copies of My Girl, there was a disclaimer that read, the fatal disease of AIDS can be transmitted by the mixing of blood, so children should be warned against copying the scene in which the two children in this film become blood brothers for life. I think the BBFC generally got hit with a stick when anything was caused by what people perceived to be movies, basically being proved to be cobblers in pretty much every scenario. But I think at that point, I think the BBFC with the video nasties and everything like them, and... I mean, they were walking on eggshells. I mean, having James Furman as the head of your organisation really didn't help. But I think they were just trying to close off every single avenue to the point where you would get something like this on the front of a PG-rated movie, which, looking back, is kind of ridiculous. But back then, 
I guess the BBFC were just, they were very, you're right, they were very into stopping imitable behaviour. So for horror movies, it was anything that had like power tools, for instance. So people could like get their hands on power tools. So things like, you know, a driller killer, a Texas chainsaw, all that stuff was really looked down on and heavily cut or banned. Now, with this, slightly more obscure, there's kind of good intentions behind it, but it also points up how strange and fucked up the censorship board was at that point in time. Yeah, and then when you watch it on DVD, like I did for the purpose of this um, episode, that warning is completely gone now. It doesn't even show up at all, but I do remember it vividly. But it's the only film that I can think of watching as a child where I remember it having that sort of warning before it. Yeah, I guess it was, again, it was all the power of Macaulay and worried kids that were going to copy him because he was so cool at the time. Yeah, I mean, that scene for me, I mean, I, I considering I'm a massive horror fan, I, I am really squeamish at the sight of blood, especially real blood. And kind of, it's like small injuries that always get me, so like nicks and cuts and things like that. So I wasn't watching it through my fingers, but I was like, oh, no, this is this is gross. I'll go off and watch something where people are kind of getting disemboweled and I'll think, oh, that's fine. But somebody gets a little nick on their finger. It's like, oh, God, no. Yeah, that's the worst thing that happens in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, again, it was just um, another, like sort of when I was researching into the history of this movie, there was a TV spot for it, which was just, you know, a little quick advertisement that would have played around the Thanksgiving time when the movie came out. And then... The quote was, the holidays are back and so is Mac. And then obviously an image of him grinning. (laughs) They should have said the holidays are back and so is Mac. Unfortunately, he's not back for all that long. (laughs) That one just cracked me up because like, if nobody's seen this movie, (laughs) then it's it's just incredible. I just, I think that's probably what fascinates me about this film so much is its marketing. But, you know, as we're going on about this, it is still, you know, a quality coming-of-age movie, and I still get so much out of it. You know, I'll probably, you know, re-watch it from time to time for the rest of my life. I would probably show it to my daughter eventually when I feel that she's ready for it. <laughs> she was in the room at the time, but obviously it would have gone over her head. She's yeah. more interested in milk. <laughs> it's just so well-acted as well. Dan Aykroyd as the father who um, is kind of not taking much interest in his daughter he's not like there for her as such he's not present i think that's that's mm. the way to describe it he's kind of cut himself off emotionally and then things don't improve until jamie lee curtis comes into it and i think she is a very comforting presence in this film without her i think it would be that much harder because she comes in and she shakes things up for the family and um brings them together so and again a very strong performance from her and she's so likable in it because Anna Klumski, who holds the whole movie together, such a dynamic and interesting character. I'm surprised that she didn't go on to have much much more success as a child actress, because obviously my girl like skyrocketed her into, you know, this like again, she was probably on par with Macaulay Culkin when the film came out. But then she made the sequel and um, a few other movies then uh, decided to retire from acting for a bit and then recently came back and has done more things but yeah a very very striking performance and unforgettable young performance as well yeah if you haven't seen veep the uh, hbo series anna klumsky is really good in veep 
that's a recommendation for anybody who hasn't seen it. Um, but yeah, you're right. Performance is really good across the board in this. Quite a lot of recognisable faces. It's those actors where you think, oh, I know him from somewhere. And, you know, it's, but they've, they've cast people that kind of were not massive stars in the supporting roles, but you would recognise them from somewhere else. That's part of the charm of My Girl because it's cast really well all the way through. There's a kind of subplot where there are a group of girls who don't like Vader very much. And that I'd expected to be developed a bit more. It's only really touched upon in one particular sequence and then right at the end because it kind of forms the basis of where the story is going to go next. But to be honest, it doesn't really need that kind of mean girls slant to it because it's not really about her dealing with people at her school who don't like her very much. It's more to do with her own personal journey and coming to terms with, you know, loss and things like that. So I guess that kind of subplot probably would have been a bit too much baggage because it's not... Um, it doesn't have a lot of fat on it, my girl. It's only like 91 minutes or something, is it? Yeah, something, something like, like that, around 90, that mark. 91, 95 minutes. It's, but, but it's really, it, it doesn't hang about. It, it doesn't kind of wallow in anything. So the plot keeps moving pretty quickly. Maybe they thought that delving into that conflict between her and the other girls at her school was just one plot too many, which I kind of agree with. Yeah, and then you have also the plot with the English teacher and Vader going into an adult writing class. And I think that has quite a lot of the comedic elements in there with some of the side characters in that. So um, I think that was quite fun to watch in it. So, yeah, it does balance the comedy and the drama and the sadness very, very well because it's it's got a lot of dark humour in it, you know, because obviously it's going to, it's set in a funeral parlour. But it's, it just it balances it out really well. And I think even though you have got these sad elements that do hit you hard when, they, when it happens, um, you do have some light relief in it. Yeah, it kind of pulls back and it knows when to, well, not, not shy away, but it knows when to step back a little bit from the heavy stuff. It's dealing with topics that you wouldn't normally get in this kind of movie. So you have to sweeten it a little bit. And... I mean, the comedy isn't kind of forced. It comes out of the situations quite naturally. So it's kind of a weird thing. I mean, if somebody came up to me and thought, well, you definitely wouldn't like a movie like My Girl because it's not your thing. Well, to be perfectly honest, I think it's quite an enjoyable movie, really. And it has got something to say. It's not just a kind of forgettable throwaway kids movie, which is just put there to occupy sort of the rugrats for an hour and a half, and by the end of it, you're no wiser about anything else. It's just a bit of fluff that you can stick on, and at the end of it, it's like, yeah, that was fine, you know, the kids enjoyed it. This has got something more going on, which I like. Yeah, and I think the ending's quite powerful as well. Oh, that poem. When she yes. reads the poem at the end, that's yeah. another moment where you're just like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that was, sweaty eyes. <laughs> yeah that, was, that was closer for me than the open casket, I was thinking, because I'd, I'd well, I don't think I'd blocked it out, but I couldn't remember the poem that she said at, read at the end. And I guess that that was that was probably the closest I came to losing it during this movie. Because, yeah, but it also it shows how much she's grown and that she's coping with it. And you don't have to be cheerful about everything. You can cope. You can cope with loss and grief. You don't have to have a 
stupid grin on your face all the time. And I think this movie is saying that, you know, yeah, there's there's great bits of life and there's really crappy bits of life. And you just have to deal with them as you see fit. Because when the major event in this film does happen, even though there has been subtle hints throughout on a rewatch, it's just how it happens is just, uh, you know, incredibly sad and it could have, you know, been preventable. It's literally that she has this mood ring that she loses and being like a really good friend, he decides to go and find it for her and that's when bees attack. And you don't quite expect it. And then you see him being attacked and then it cuts away. So you don't really know if he's if he survived initially until you see Dan Aykroyd and his colleague like um, wheeling in the, the body. And it's, oh, it, it's really harrowing stuff, you know, for a movie, a PG movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, that's one of the... It's one of the positives about this movie. It's dealing with real issues. It's dealing with some fairly dark stuff in the guise of a feel-good family movie. And and there are, I mean, eventually, I guess it is feel-good. But it's like, um, what did somebody once say about Slumdog Millionaire, about it being a feel-good movie? They said, you have to go through an awful lot of Slumdog to get to the millionaire. So I think I think it's not my girl isn't quite that extreme, but you have to. I mean, it doesn't put you through the mill per se, but there's there's quite a lot of dark stuff going on. Eventually, everything does work out for the best, but it's not going to let you off the hook all the way through the movie either. And thankfully, there is a sequel, My Girl Two, that was released in 1994, and I think after seeing the the sequel, it was a bit more comforting because it doesn't go as heavy as the first one. It is, again, a coming of age, a journey of discovery for Vader as she navigates through, um, you know, adolescence. But it's knowing that she's going to be okay at the end. It does, as I say, bring some more comfort to the audience. Yeah, when I saw My Girl 2, my first thought was, (laughs) they're not going to kill Austin O'Brien off in this one, are they? (laughs) Yeah, you know, it is worrying. Same sort of promotional material. But no, it doesn't go there, thankfully. And um, yeah, it's all, all a little bit brighter and there's less focus on the funeral home and everything. It's, it's a lot more positive. Mm. But of course, we've got to talk about some horror references in this movie because it does have them. As we mentioned, uh, Griffin Dunn from American Wolf in London and the film also features Bad Moon Rising on the soundtrack. So that's a nice nod to that. Jamie Lee Curtis, obviously, who is the queen of horror, she stars in this. That is that connection. And... Interestingly, and first time I ever noticed this, watching the credits, there's an extra called Edgar Allan Poe IV. I'm assuming that he is related. I mean, he is, I, he is related. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, didn't do it. Yeah, I mean, yeah it's, a, it's an odd name to have to start with. But yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, the fact that he's working on a movie like this, which is quite cool. Also... Um, is Richard Mazur in it out of the thing? He's he's he, yes, he's in he it. Yes, yeah. he is. Yeah, yeah. He's the brother of yes. uh, Dan Aykroyd, yeah. isn't he? Yeah. So yeah, there's there's a bit of horror pedigree in this. I mean, you can you can get horror connections in quite a lot of movies, but yeah, there's there's lots of horror or horror adjacent folks in this. Dan Aykroyd, obviously Ghostbusters. I'm not saying that every horror fan will put this on and and have a great time with it because. I think it gets it depends what you want out of the movie, but I think some people will see my girl and see the title and just think, "Oh, I'm not touching that." Um, well, a bit unfair, really, because I think you're missing out on a movie that 
is actually not what you think it's going to be if you haven't seen it before. Yeah, it is definitely not the movie that it markets itself to be, as we heavily discussed. And I think that's, as I say, it's the most fascinating aspect because I think I was taken aback as a child. And every time I watch it, it does blow my mind, like how different this movie is from what you think it's going to be. And I, I would, you know, arguably say it has probably impacted me more than any horror movie. Yeah, because it's kind of, it's real events and it's kind of confronting you with stuff that could actually, well, and does actually happen. So it's forcing you to face up to this sort of thing, but not in a particularly heavy way. It, it does it with a reasonably light touch, even though it's talking about things that you might not want to consider. It's doing it in a way that it's not hitting you over the head with it. And it's giving you enough space and it's leaving you enough gaps where there's a bit of comedy to alleviate everything that again i think we've said it before it's 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 a bold step to take a movie like this and to set it where it does and to have the stuff happen in it that does so you know you've got to give it credit for that if nothing else <laughs> definitely and it does also have some connections with the film Father of the Bride, which also came out in 1991. Firstly, Steve Martin was up for the part of Harry Saltonfuss, but couldn't commit because of Father of the Bride. There's the actor who plays the Doctor. He's in Father of the Bride. Macaulay Culkin's brother, Kieran, is in Father of the Bride as well. And both films use the song My Girl. That's true. And what, what do you think? Steve, Steve Martin in the Dan Aykroyd role, would that have worked? I don't know. I can't envision it, to be honest. Obviously, again, Steve Martin's one of those actors that is, you know, fundamentally attached to comedy. So I don't know if I could imagine him being really serious in this part. I think Dan Aykroyd was the like, perfect casting for it. Interestingly enough, I've not seen any um, other options for um, the Shelley character. So maybe it was Jamie Lee Curtis from day one. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess if you're saying what we're going to do with Shelley, who's going to play her, and then Jamie Lee Curtis walks in, you kind of think, well, if Jamie Lee Curtis wants to do it, then we're going to have her on the cast. That would have been my view on it. It's been like, yo, we've got Jamie Lee Curtis. Right, OK, forget everybody else for this part, then we're just going with Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, I can't imagine anybody else in that role. Like, I think um, Dan Acker and Jamie Lee Curtis are perfect together. They've got great chemistry. And again, they bring that level of comfort to it because obviously you have the um the positivity of the new romance with their characters so it kind of alleviates all the the emotional baggage that the, the film has and so i only found this out recently the film has a literacy connection with a 1973 book uh, titled a taste of blackberries by doris buchanan smith have you ever read or heard of that book i have to say it's not ever been on my reading list no, never heard of it before, but apparently the similarity is, I think it's a coming-of-age story about two boys, though, but the bee sting allergy features in that as well, and it's the same outcomes. They must have uh, cherry-picked that idea from that book when they were creating My Girl. More than likely. And then, obviously, uh, the Wicker Man remake took the bee motif <laughs> from My Girl, surely. That, that must that must have been the inspiration for the not the bee sequence in the Wicker Man. Yeah, it's hard to like unsee that once you've seen it. 
Um, there was also a tie-in novel written, um, which was based on the movie, written by Patricia Hermes. I've not read it, but I find that quite interesting that usually a movie's based on a book, but this time they wrote the book after the movie. I don't really know what that would add as such, but yeah, it's I quite think, interesting. Yeah, there's a, there's a few instances where the novelizations were written kind of post-movie. Not really sure why. I mean, I've never been a massive fan of film novelizations. I remember the novelization of Lethal Weapon was different to the movie. It's an odd it's an odd decision. I mean, it was a good one because I was thinking, oh, there's stuff happening in here that I that wasn't in the film. But you would guess that most people if they wanted a, a movie novelization, then they would want it to pretty much follow the movie beat by beat. Whereas when you opened the Lethal Weapon novelization, it was like this didn't happen in the movie, and they don't do that. But you know, quite in, quite an interesting approach. I mean, I'm not sure what Warner Brothers thought when they saw the novelization. It was like, well, this isn't our movie. But we digress. I'm I'm talking about Lethal Weapon on a My Girl <laughs> conversation. <laughs> no worries. I'm sure we'll get around to that eventually. Yeah. So the legacy of the film, obviously, as we've touched on, it did have a sequel in 1994, My Girl Two, which I'm going to revisit at some point soon after watching this one because I'd like to see how that holds up because I don't think I've watched it as much as the first one but or it's been a long while there was talk for many years they were going to make a third film a My Girl 3 I personally would like to see that because I think there is scope there to see what happened to Vader as an adult yeah grown-up Vader could be quite interesting Uh, I mean I'm not sure what they throw into the mix for the third one be quite an interesting one. I don't know if they'd have any more trouble with the American ratings board because I'm guessing that Vader as an adult is far more liberated and willing to take all sorts of um, chances than Vader as a kid. So, you know, it might have been an R-rated movie, My Girl 3. We may never get to see that anyway. No, I think it's completely been shelved now, unfortunately, but... Yeah, interesting to think of what could have been, but maybe it's best just to leave it as it is. I mean, two very strong movies out of the franchise, well, mini-franchise. Yeah, yeah. So before we wrap up, we um, are going to look at the Rotten Tomatoes (laughs) stats, because obviously we like to say whether we agree or disagree with them. It has a 53% tomato meter and a 77% audience score, which is okay. I'd give it more than that personally because I love this film. I'd give it more like sort of 90% or something. I think that goes in line with what the general opinion of it probably would have been at the time. It's not a movie that critics are going to rave over. I think they're going to want to have something that's got a little more heft to it. Um, You can't have something too heavy. I mean, it, it is ostensibly a kids movie and it's not surprising that the audience score is higher i think it's not a movie that critics are gonna particularly latch on to oh so i mean 53 percent it's an okay score even with a movie that's brave enough to deal with death i guess that critics are wanting sort of some intellectual treatise on on the psychology of death even in a kids movie so i don't put a huge amount of stock on what critics say for quite a lot of kids movies to be perfectly honest because quite frankly they're not aimed at them and you do see critics reviews of kids movies where you just think you know you're writing this but it's clear that you think this is beneath you writing about it so 
I'm not mentioning the critic. <laughs> Definitely. And on IMDb, it's got a 6.9 out of 10, which is yeah. fair. But again, I'd rate it higher than that because, again, I think this film still holds up and it has a very important message. And it's just so likeable. I just don't know what you could dislike about it. Once you get past the fact that um, Macaulay Culkin doesn't make it to the end of the movie, which I guess might have ground quite a few people's gears because they were expecting it to be something more along the lines of Home Alone, probably not quite as knockabout, and then they confront them with the fact that 70 minutes in, he's dead. You know, if you're a Macaulay Culkin fan, can you deal with that? Going back to being a horror fan, I mean, if you're, if you're a fan of horror actors and actresses, this is something you have to deal with pretty much every movie because <laughs> very few of them make it to the end credits anyway. But if you're not of that genre and you think, oh, it's a Macaulay Culkin movie, oh, it'll be great, you know, settle down to watch Macaulay, and then all of a sudden, guy's in a coffin. So um, reading on um, Common Sense Media and also on that original article that I quoted earlier about parents' reactions... There was this thing where parents were advised to, you know, sit down to their kids and explain that Macaulay Culkin is alive and well, he didn't really die and all this. Now, I think with the passage of time, that's quite interesting because I'd be like, look, he's, he's still alive and I could put Party Monster on or maybe the new American Horror Story, which he's starring yeah. in, just, just to, you know, show there he is. He grew up. It kind of shows the influence that movies can have on people where you're actually having to explain that somebody who dies in the movie isn't actually they didn't kill him in the movie i mean it wasn't a snuff thing my girl they didn't kind of say okay like let's just set the bees on macaulay now and then just like film him getting stung to death it's a <laughs> it's a kind of a weird thing I, but i think there's a difference between the sort of innocence of the states and the cynicism of the uk because I think most kids in the UK, even at the time, would have said, well, no, he's not. He's clearly not dead. They clearly didn't kill him on the movie. But I guess in one way, it's, it's nice that people are kind of so innocent that they have to have it explained to them. But on the other hand, you just think, really? Really? You're, you're having to explain the fact that you've seen somebody die on screen in a film with fictional characters in and a fictional story. But you have to still say, oh, by the way, they didn't kill him. It's like... On the other hand, that's quite disturbing. Yeah, it, it's it's very odd. I suppose like if you're a little child and you've watched it and you don't understand yes. that it's not real, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. But I think, you know, most kids are quite intelligent enough to realise it's only a movie. It's yeah. only a movie. Yes. That's what I used to tell myself all the time yeah. when I was uncomfortable with something. Exactly, that's the thing. Yeah. It's not yeah. real. It is, it's not real. It's just a film. Macaulay Culkin is still alive and well. He's walking around. Probably isn't allergic to bees. <laughs> I'd hope not. But he's in the new American Horror Story, so that's very exciting. But we have spoken about Macaulay Culkin quite a lot in this episode. But as we need to strip back to, My Girl isn't his film. It's Anna Klumsky's film, first and foremost. And there's a great article on the Hollywood Suite um, written by an Emily Gagney. Apologies if I've pronounced that incorrectly. It's called Why My Girl is Much More Than the Boy and the Bees. And it really just heavily um, focuses on how this is Vader's story and what she has to confront in this film and how she has to grow up. And that how people just think of this movie, think of that scene, but they don't appreciate the kind of meat of this film and what it's truly about. Yeah, absolutely. It is Anna Klumsky's movie and she's brilliant. She's absolutely brilliant. So come for the bees, but stay for Anna Klumsky.
and after the generally very well regarded My Girl, is a movie that isn't quite as well regarded. It's 1978's Laser Blast, which is directed by Michael Ray. It's his only directing credit to date. It was produced by Charles Band, who went on to do lots of things under the Empire banner, things like um, Trancers and Rage War and, and Subspecies and all those Empire movies like Demonic Toys and Dollman and all that sort of stuff. This is an early outing for Charles Band's production company. You can kind of gauge where it's going to be from that sort of thing. I mean, God love him. I think Trancers is a brilliant movie. If you haven't seen Trancers, it's so worth it. This isn't quite in the same league to be perfectly honest. But we are going to get to grips with it. And our synopsis comes from Leo L. Schwab, which goes like this. Alien creatures kill a mutated alien creature in the California desert. Its remains and the high-tech laser gun and power source are accidentally left behind and are found by an ostracized teenager. However, the power source causes the teenager to mutate too and he goes on a murderous rampage. That makes it sound much more exciting than the film actually is. It does, yes, unfortunately. <laughs> now, the way that we've come to Laser Blast, it's not my childhood trauma, this. It's my wife's childhood trauma, because she was telling me about a movie that she once went to see as the... It was the B feature when she went to see the Muppet movie, which would have been kind of 1979, 1980, that sort of time. I mean, obviously, she was very young at the time, but she said... I saw this really weird and quite scary thing that was supporting the Muppets movie. And it's about a kid who found this gun in the desert and something grew in his chest and there were aliens and stuff. And I was thinking, this sounds a lot like Laser Blast. I wonder if it was Laser Blast. Anyway, I tried to sort of source some clips from it and I found a bit of stuff on YouTube, showed Alison this and she went, yeah, that's the movie. And I was like, they showed this with the Muppet movie. And she was like, yeah, yeah, I remember it. It was really weird and it was quite it was quite scary. It was quite unnerving. I don't think it was for kids. And I was like, yeah, you and me both. Because at the moment, I mean, if you get Laser Blast in the UK at the moment, the Blu-ray of it is a 15 rated movie. Now, having done a little bit of digging, the original UK cinema release of Laser Blast was an A certificate, which is the PG, basically. Now... They'd cut down the original version of Laser Blast. I think the version we saw was like 82 minutes. The UK cinema release was just over 80 minutes. So they'd lopped off two minutes of this movie to make it palatable for what they thought was a family audience. But even with two minutes off this movie, I really don't think this is a kid's movie. There's there's lots and lots of stuff in this where... I mean, the violence isn't particularly nasty, but the tone of the movie is just, it's not for kids. You've got this kind of guy sort of mutating into this fanged alien monster, and you've got pool parties where there's sort of topless nudity and like horrible guys being really leeringly sexist. I mean, there's a couple of sex scenes in this movie. I mean, granted, they're quite mild, but... Is it the sort of thing that you would drop into an A-rated movie at the side of the Muppets film? I, I'm at a loss for words. I, I'm I'm genuinely surprised that... Well, I'm genuinely surprised that A, this ever saw the light of a projector in the UK because it's generally terrible. But secondly, 
who the hell thought that this was suitable to play alongside the Muppets? It's utterly bizarre. So for me, I'd never heard of Laser Blast until Darren had mentioned it for the episode. So I was quite intrigued. I saw it had a very low rating on IMDb, 2.7 out of 10. So I thought, okay, this is probably going to be terrible. And um, sort of set myself up for, is this going to be like heartbeats level of terrible? (laughs) And yeah, it kind of is. Because again, it's one of those movies that nothing really happens in it. It's just, for, you know, a film that was originally aimed at children, it's very slow moving not a lot happens and it's just got this weirdness to it it's not an accessible film as far as kids are concerned in my opinion I mean it has some like cute stop-motion animation aliens and this was like pre-ET they Mm. have got kind of a similar aesthetic to ET but this was even before that but I just don't know how it complements the Muppets it's it's a very bizarre like choice of um double bill I imagine it upset quite a lot of the audience there was a tradition of double bills playing but you'd have something that was at least something like what the main feature was going to be this is so far away from the muppet movie that it's unbelievable you're right the stop motion aliens are the best thing about the movie i love the stop motion aliens in this film because it's very much the ray harryhausen stuff and they're really charming, and they're the best characters in the movie, to be perfectly honest. I mean, they're speaking in an alien language, but they're the best actors in this movie by a long way. I couldn't wait for the aliens to come back, to be perfectly honest, because they're the most interesting thing in the movie. The main guy, his performance is very strange. I mean, he's supposed to be this kind of downtrodden teenager who's getting picked on. But he kind of lasers about and he's he's a bit disinterested in everything. So you kind of think, well, it's not surprising that people are taking advantage of you because you, you're a bit of a dick, really. And the fact that he finds this laser gun in the desert and then starts shooting things. I mean, it's just an excuse to have explosions, basically. There's very little bloodthirsty violence in this lots of things get blown up and people get blown up when they're inside something but it's that sort of movie apparently charles band was looking to make something on the back of all these revenge movies that were out in the mid late 70s things like death wish and he kind of wanted to make death wish but give it a bit of a sci-fi slant and set it out in the middle of nowhere because they could shoot it for no money. So basically what you've got is a a very oblique version of Death Wish with a sci-fi alien angle that somebody thought, yeah, this will play perfectly well for families and kids. Just come along to see in a screening of Laser Blast. It's absolutely baffling as to why they thought that this, even with cuts, if you see the full version, you can kind of see where they would need to cut things to make it a PG movie. But even then, what you've got left, it's still got kind of an adult tone to it. Like you say, kids are not going to be interested in this. I mean, the story is extremely slow to build. There isn't an awful lot that goes on. The characterizations are pretty sketchy. I mean, there are a couple of bullies in it. But to be honest... As bullies go, yeah, there's a bit of a fight at one point, but it's unclear as to why they're sort of portrayed as bullies. I mean, again, they're just arseholes, basically. One of the bullies, weirdly enough, is Eddie Deason, 
who's in things like Grease and is normally kind of a geeky character. Whereas in here, he's kind of portrayed as a bit of a bad guy. Doesn't work because of the way he looks. He just looks like Eddie Dees and it's just like, that guy's the geeky bloke from Grease, isn't it? And it just doesn't work. It's like, he's the sidekick to the guy who's knocking about the main character. And he's still kind of geeky and sort of awkward and stuff. And it's like, portraying this guy as a bad guy, that just doesn't work at all. You'd think that if any, if anything, he'd be the guy finding the gun in the desert and he'd be the one going off on the rampage because one of the problems is that, you know, the main guy doesn't look like a weakling either. He, he doesn't look like the guy who would allow himself to be bullied. So there's so much wrong with the casting of this movie. Well, there's so much wrong with everything in this movie, pretty much apart from the stop motion others, but the casting is a problem. I mean, you do get recognisable people. You get Roddy McDowell as a doctor. He doesn't last very long. Um, you get Keenan Wynn, who you've seen like in loads of other stuff. So they've got a few recognisable actors just to kind of lure you in. Say, oh yeah, Rod- Roddy McDowell's in this. It's, yeah, well, yeah, he is in it, but he's in for, for like five minutes. Then he gets blown up. The sheriff... If you recognise the sheriff in this, he was also the sheriff in quite a few episodes of Murder, She Wrote. So if you're a Murder, She Wrote fan, I think it's, is he called Ron, Ron Masak, I think is the sheriff. So if you're a Murder, She Wrote aficionado, he does appear in this, playing not the same sort of sheriff. The fact that he's taking revenge out on these people is massively disproportionate. I mean, what what have they actually done to this guy? I mean, yeah, they're hassling him a bit, and... He's a bit ostracised, but does that warrant him charging around the town, blowing everybody up? No, it doesn't. I mean, it's it's a revenge movie that doesn't have any point to the revenge, really, because, I mean, at least Death Wish, you know, the guy's wife gets killed and he's, that sets him off on the path of shooting everybody. But this is just a bit of a whiny prick. There's a whiny prick with a massive laser and he just thinks, right, OK, right, I've got a chance to blow stuff up and it's like, it's... I mean, I've seen it, I think, three times now, Laser Blast, and it never it never fails to completely baffle me as to why it was made, what the decisions were in terms of plots, and it's just a really, really odd movie. And it's not very interesting either. So God knows why I keep watching this movie. I think I think there's some there's a certain amount of fascination in that part of me just thinks I can't believe how bad this movie is because it's got all the elements. It could have been a good story, but it just doesn't go anywhere. You know, you're not sufficiently invested in anybody in this plot. His girlfriend's the most sympathetic character, apart from the aliens, of course. But even she's kind of given nothing to do apart from kind of worry on the sidelines and then be around for the very mild sex scene kind of late on in the movie. But it's... <laughs> I'm just... I'm just at a loss. And I've seen this movie before and I've watched it again. And I'm just thinking, I don't get this movie at all. Luckily for me, I've only seen this movie once and I'm probably never going to watch it again because it did nothing for me. I found it a very flat movie. Like, again, I didn't know who it was really for, what it was trying to do. As a concept, yes, it has some potential there. But the finished product, it was just, you know, incredibly boring. There was hardly any depth to any characters. You didn't really care what was going on. I wanted more aliens, I, you know, I'll admit that. Upon um, looking into the film a bit deeper, 
it was just typically a Star Wars cash-in. That's what, you know, and maybe that played a part in them trying to screen it before something like The Muppets because they thought, oh, the target audience would be there for it because of Star Wars being incredibly popular at the time. But yeah, as as I said to you in in the middle of watching it, this film has Star Wars envy. Oh, it does. Literally, there's a scene where a sign that says Star Wars gets blown up. And it's like one of those really like low budget, cheaply made films that is trying to capitalize on a big budget feature. I think that's that's what it was essentially doing. And yeah, it just I just sat there thinking, what have I just watched again? Like you're very <laughs> baffled. And I mean, I don't think the fact you've watched it three times. I think if I watched it three times, I'd probably still be in the same position. So I'm gonna cut my losses and write off Laser Blast as you know something that I watched. For the purpose of a podcast, the yeah. things I do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, we've 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 watched stuff like this. We're going to watch stuff like this again, no doubt. Um, and there's stuff in the plot where you just don't understand why they've made the decisions that they have. At the start, the aliens take out the fugitive, but they leave the laser gun there. Why didn't they take the laser gun with them? Because then they get called up by another alien which who pretty much says well you've left this gun behind you're gonna to have to go and retrieve it i know that there'd be no movie if they didn't pick the gun up but they know that it's there because he's been he's been firing it they turn up they kill the fugitive at the start the gun drops into some undergrowth but they don't they don't go looking for it they just get in the spaceship and they just toddle off the movie is full of stuff like this where there's plot points where you just think either that would never happen or that is just such a left field turn in where this is going that I don't understand what the thinking behind it was. I mean, you've got a government agent in there as well who turns up midway in the, into the proceedings. You don't know where he's from, really. You don't know what his MO is. Um, you know, why is he there? What's he investigating? You just know that he's he's some kind of establishment bigwig who's obviously on the trail of this weapon but it's never satisfactorily explained he just he just drives around in his cadillac well i was going to say being enigmatic but he's not he's a dreadful actor so he isn't enigmatic and at the end instead of driving out of the way when he's blowing up the middle of the town he drives right up to the main character, who's who's obviously he's, he's in kind of full alien mode now, and he's he's just shooting everything for all it's worth. But this guy rolls up to him. He's got this guy's girlfriend in the car with him, and he just rolls straight up to him. So he's like about five yards away from him. It's like that's dumb as shit, mate. Why have you you just seen him blowing up all these buildings and police cars, and you've driven right up to him, and you don't have any weaponry? What what are you doing? And the movie's full of stuff like this. It's <laughs> it's so bizarre. There's a lot of cars get blown up in this movie. There's a lot of cars getting blown up. In fact, anybody that pretty much falls victim, apart from the guy that goes in the toilet, everybody, including Eddie Deason and his bully mates in their hot rod, they basically kind of drive along. And that I mean that sequence where they're driving along in that sports car, they're just driving along for about three or four minutes. And it's just I'm driving along a stretch of road. And then at the end of that three or four minutes, main guy comes out of nowhere and then shoots the car and blows it up. It's full of stuff like it's like full of padding. It's full of terrible performances. It's it's, it's just 
it's just a a weird and terrible movie god knows what cinema goers in the uk thought of it when this showed up before i was like oh we're gonna go and see kermit and fozzy and it'll be a nice it'll be nice at an hour and a half and then he dropped this on them before the muppet movie it's like no wonder allison was traumatized by it because it's just it's weird and a bit creepy and a bit unnerving and it's not put together like a kids film because it's not a kids film yeah it's completely nonsensical really really weird and i'm just curious as what exactly was cut out of it for this kids showing because the bit that um struck me when i was like yeah this really isn't a kids movie was when there was that brief sex scene again you don't really see a lot but it is kind of obvious what's going on there. And yeah. if, you know, you're showing this to, you know, a young audience, is that really appropriate? So I'm wondering if they cut that out yeah. of the two minutes or or any of the violence. I mean, again, it's mainly just explosions. There's nothing like that offensive in it. But it is, again, it's all about tone. Yeah. And it has just got a weirdness. I mean, it's, it's a little bit like of a lazy film in the sense it's just like going with it and just chucking things at it with no real reason. But at the same time, it, it is really odd, especially like I can imagine like back in the day with effects like they were kids maybe being really afraid of like his face morphing into this like quasi alien creature. I think for adults, that kind of alien morphing thing is quite upsetting. So God knows what kids made of it. It's not even ridiculous enough to take away from how daft it is because there's something quite nasty at the heart of it as well i mean it's not it's not done with any sort of humor yeah you've got some comedy relief for the um sheriff's department but to be perfectly honest i mean that's very brief somebody's smoking drugs as well at one point i bet that got cut you know there's, yeah. a, there's a drug smoking sequence and it's like yeah i'm sure that they would have cut that for an a rating i guess that there were a lot of things that you had to put a b feature on and and I think it got to the point where basically it was like, what can we put on for no money? You know, what can we have that's cheap and that we can stick on? And maybe somebody decided to say, well, you know, the Muppet movie is going to cost a lot to screen anyway. So let's just get something that's out there and that we can screen. I'm not sure. Did anybody ever watch Laser Blast before distributing it? We probably have slightly more sophisticated tastes now than back in the sort of late 70s early 80s but even then you'd have probably had most people coming out of laser blast even with even with the sort of you know the lack of spectacle that movies had back then even then people would have come out of laser blast and gone well that was crap definitely i think yeah kids would have been traumatized adults would be like what the hell did i just watch what was that very very bizarre and i'm just wondering what kind of other odd movies would have been shown before quite famous movies oh yeah i mean i'm I'm sure that um that there'd have been stuff playing as b features that had no bearing on the main feature it's a good movie to go and get ice cream in laser blast i mean if you're waiting for the muppets you can wander out of laser blast for like 15 20 minutes and the plot will have not advanced one little bit in fact, you, you probably haven't even missed anybody dying in it either because most of that happens right at the end. So, you know, you want to nip to the loo, get some popcorn, that sort of thing. You can pretty much miss the whole middle bit of Laser Blast and it doesn't really affect your experience of the movie because 
the first bit's rubbish, the last bit's fairly rubbish, and the middle bit's rubbish. So it's just rubbish. It is just rubbish. <laughs> I mean, having a look at Rotten Tomatoes, there's no tomato meter for Laser Blast because it's only got four reviews, but the audience score for Laser Blast is a massive fifteen percent. I can't believe it even got that. To be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they've got away with it there. Just for, I mean, a couple of, well, in fact, just to pick the the first critics review of Laser Blast, it said, the worst of the worst before Charles Band began getting creative and fun, which I completely (laughs) agree with because Charles Band made some great movies in the 80s, but this isn't one of them. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's 78, but I think he was just cutting his teeth on what he could do at the time. But this doesn't stack up against the stuff that he was producing during the 80s. It was all straight to video, but it was like 10 times better than Laser Blast. I mean, probably, well, in the case of Trance, it's probably about a thousand times better than Laser Blast. I'm glad I revisited it, just because there's that part of me which thought, was it as terrible as I thought when I saw it last time? And then getting through it, it's like, yep, it was. It was absolutely terrible. It was everything, everything I expected and less, Laser Blast. And the artwork for it, again, is very creative. So it's like you see that poster and you think, oh, this could be like a pretty cool movie. It looks like it's got a lot of action, science fiction in it. And it's the kind of movie that you could imagine something like Arrow Video distributing with that artwork. But again, you're not going to get that quality in the film. Yeah. it's Again, I mean, we're going on about marketing like we did in My Girl. The marketing in My Girl was misleading in one way. Laser Blast marketing is misleading in that it's giving you thoughts of a much more exciting film than it actually is because everything in the poster, although it's to do with the film, it's a very, very, very small part of the movie and you've got to wade through some fairly dull exposition and this main guy's family life and the fact that, you know, his mum's always off to Acapulco and that he's at a pool party where nobody's really communicating with him and stuff and and it's a really small town and the police don't like him and it's like, oh God, just get on with it. (laughs) But the problem is when it gets on with it, it's still not a particularly great movie. They blow a few derelict buildings up they tip a few cars over and there are some explosions. And then, spoiler alert, the aliens turn up again on the top of a building and they hit our, our hero, well, anti-hero, with some sort of death ray and he dies. And it ends with his girlfriend kneeling over the body and crying, end a movie. For kids, you've got some fanged alien guy charging round the town, killing people indiscriminately, and then you've got the downbeat ending where he's dead. End of story. There's no, there's no real closure on the fact that yeah, yeah, the aliens have killed him. End of story. There's no redemption. It's just there you go, kids. Dead guy on the pavement. End of story. <laughs> I can imagine that would have left kids feeling very cold, like yeah. seeing that at the end, and that was it. No real resolution. However, I was very glad when the aliens turned up and killed him because it meant the movie was about <laughs> to end, and I could get on with my life. Ah. <laughs> uh, uh. I'm not saying don't see Laser Blast, because I think it's the sort of movie that if you haven't seen it, you have to watch it once, just because it's that feeling of like, I cannot believe what I'm watching. This is just so ill-judged in every single department. On that level, yes, if you're expecting it to be any good, it isn't. It really isn't. 
It's listed at the bottom of films on IMDb. <laughs> and as we said, we've gone over the Rotten Tomatoes audience score, 15%, very generous 15%. I think it maybe we should have had like 2% or something. I imagine that the people who voted for it on Rotten Tomatoes were either kind of related to the cast or it was people who worked on the movie. There's part of me that loves bad movies and this is a very bad movie. But in all good faith, I can't really say it's a, it's a movie that I would actually uprate on Rotten Tomatoes because it's a pile of cack. It's not even one of those movies that it's so bad it's good. Like It hasn't really got any entertainment factor to it. It's just a very, very strange kind of half-heartedly put-together B-movie. But as I say, the only interesting thing about it is it playing before the Muppets. Yeah, exactly. I mean... <laughs> Go figure. Somebody must have thought that was a good idea. Clearly, in the case of Alison, she still remembers it to this day as that weird movie that played before the Muppets, which was completely inappropriate. So, yeah, it's got a little bit of notoriety, but in the final analysis, it doesn't really stop it from being crap. And if you do want to torture yourself, you can watch Laser Blast completely for free on YouTube. Someone has kindly put it up there for those people curious enough to endure it. You have to verify your age, though. So what does that tell you? <laughs> yeah, they probably want to verify your sanity as well before you actually watch it. But I, I guess they can't do that. To be perfectly honest, I think, yeah, you would probably do need to verify your age because... The 15 rating is kind of justified. It's not a very strong 15, to be perfectly honest. But it's just not for kids. And the fact that somebody decided that even with cuts, it was going to be suitable for kids. I can't get into the mind of that person. Even if they saw the, the cut version, because of what what's going on in the general tone of the film, I can't believe that somebody sat there, even with the 80-minute version, and just thought, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Kids will love that. No, no, they won't. It's just weird and it's it's a bit gross and it's just it's just odd and, and no, no, please don't. <laughs> and on that note, thank you for listening to our discussion on Laser Blast. I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode forty-two of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode and all our previous episodes, you can follow us on our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast. And also let us know following this episode what your childhood trauma movie was. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested to see if there's any other Laser Blast fans out there. Next episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to have the first of our listeners' requests episode. We asked for people to suggest titles that we might want to see for the next episode and we have a list of six for the next episode which we are going to choose from very shortly the short list is the curse of halloween jack which was suggested by the i spit on your grades podcast crew andrew barron suggested three titles seance vhs 94 and hydra in the house kim millwood suggested the hidden and Mitch Bain, who provides the music for this podcast, suggested Coherence. Now, I've got a list of them in front of me. I've assigned them the numbers one to six. Haley cannot see this list. So I am going to ask Haley to pick a number from one to six. And whatever that corresponds to, we will be doing it next episode. Trash is on. It I'm is. I'm hoping I'm going to pick something good here. Yep. <laughs>
anyway, it's us that has to watch it, so it's That's fine. True. Yeah. Okay, I am going to go with number four. Number four. It's Andrew Barron's pick. It's VHS ninety four. Oh, okay. On Shudder. <laughs> so we will be watching VHS 94 in episode 43. So neither of us have seen that, obviously. So looking forward to it. Yeah, I hope it's a good one. If not, I will uh, be very upset, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> Until then, stay safe, everybody, and we'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bain. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean. <laughs>